Blessed is the man, he says, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The question is then, when we look at this first word, what is it to be blessed? You know, we say to each other, don't we all bless you and you know, the Lord bless you and all these things we say to each other as believers, whether we say it face to face or whether it's on a message or if, you know, you've done something kind for me and they say, oh, bless you, you know. But these things come out quite easy and, you know, it's one of those things that possibly get almost lost in translation. But what is this blessed person that it's talking about here? What is it to be blessed? Now, obviously, it gives you answers there in that first verse. That the person who is said to be blessed is one who is truly happy. And this happiness is something that is greatly desirable. That's what this word blessed means, to be truly happy, to be favoured, to be something that is greatly desired. You may have heard or even said the phrase, I consider myself blessed. You've said that before. I mean, I think I've said it. I think it's one of those common things. You, know, you look at life and think, yes, I'm, I consider myself blessed. And this then is to kind of analyse oneself. Look at our circumstances, maybe. Our life and all those things that it either does or doesn't have. And how fortunate we are. That's kind of what we're saying when we say, I feel I'm blessed, I'm, I'm fortunate, I'm happy, I, I have a lot, I have enough, I'm blessed. But this is a person, or the truly blessed person, is a person who is blessed both in temporal and in the spiritual. In this world, and also in the one to come. You see, many people find their blessedness in possessions, just like the rich fool in Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. Let me just read that to you. Jesus spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? since I have no room to store my crops. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all of my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Yeah. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There are myriads of people in this world that may be far better off than we are financially. There are people who live their whole lives just for business, just to line their pockets. 
And the thing that at least, I'm not saying that everybody is like this, that every rich person is like this. But what you find often is those that long after riches never stop longing. It's never enough. You probably can have more money than you could ever spend in more than one lifetime, and yet there is a continuance in trying to grasp for more. Because that's where they are blessed, if you like. That's how, where they feel blessed. That's where they feel their life is. That's what their life is, like this man in this parable. I have so much, I'm just going to keep building bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns to store all of my things. But what Jesus is saying is this. He's not saying that it's wrong to have. But what he's saying is this. Don't lay up just treasures on earth. For yourself. And not lay up riches for yourself in heaven. Our concern as believers should be to lay up riches in heaven. Where rust and moth cannot destroy. Moth eats clothes, doesn't it? Rust destroys metals. Treasures in heaven can't be touched by such earthly decay. All that we have in our possessions, whether it be little, whether it be great, will end up nowhere. I saw a little thing on Facebook, um, and it, was, it showed you two, uh, two graves dug out. So one for the rich person and one for the poor. End up in the same place. The hole's the same, the casket's the same, maybe the casket for the rich person may be a bit more ornate, a bit more extensive, but you end up in the same place. Can't take it with you. Was it Job that said you brought nothing in to this world and you can take nothing out of it? Mm -hmm. So the Lord is saying your treasures need to be rich toward God. So both here in Psalm 1 and also in, in Matthew 5, when we look at the Beatitudes, we see that truly being blessed has absolutely nothing to do with materialism. Can a person be blessed who has nothing? Absolutely. Absolutely they can be. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5 tells us. Jesus in the Beatitudes, blessed, happy, fortunate, even to be envied, are oh, the poor in spirit. What is it to be poor in spirit? Well, I know that you've been through the Beatitudes maybe once or twice. To be poor in spirit is to know the depth of your need of God. Yeah. To know you're a sinner, to know you're helpless, to know that without him you've got nothing. That's a blessed place to be. Blessed are those who mourn. Many times you hear that statement said at a funeral, but that's not what it's saying. It's not talking about people who mourn after one that's been lost. It's talking about mourning for sin. Mourning over your offence of wickedness against the thrice holy God. To mourn over your sin. That is to be truly blessed. Blessed are the meek. Jesus himself was a meek man. The meekest that there ever has been. It was said of Moses that he was the meekest man at the time on the face of the earth. Yet we ought to not mistake it for being weak. To be meek, to be humble. To put everyone above yourself. 
to make sure that you're down at the bottom, sit at the, the lowest seat of the table and make sure that that person, even if, even if, you, have, even if, you, even if you have a problem with them, if you know what I mean, if you, even if there's an issue, even if you don't like them, even if they're an enemy, let them, let them go before. Be humble. Because that's what lays up coals on the heads of the wicked. Be meek. Blessed are the meek. Blessed, it says, are those who hunger and thirst. After what? Righteousness. Does anybody here know what it is to hunger, really? Now we can have a summer grumble. You might sit there tonight and think, hurry up, Ross, because I've got some supper at home tonight and I'm getting hungry. Or you're waiting for that, what's behind that counter there? You say, I'm hungry. But do you really know what hunger is? The true hunger is when your body starts to eat its own fat. It starts to get into starvation. Blessed are those who hunger deeply and thirst for righteousness. That's what being blessed is. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. What is it to be a peacemaker? It's not about getting in between two people and saying, look, you know, stop arguing. To be a peacemaker is to preach the gospel about peace between God and man. That's what a peacemaker is. Those who declare the wonderful riches in Christ, who declare that if you trust in him, you can have true peace, true shalom. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, there won't be many people in this world that will think me or you sane for thinking that if we're persecuted, whether that be lightly or even heavily, that we're blessed. They will probably think you're crazy for saying such a thing. But the Lord Jesus Christ himself says that you are indeed blessed if you are persecuted for righteousness sake and when it, when it says for righteousness sake it means for his sake because he is the king of righteousness and he is the one whom we have our own righteousness but it's his he gives it to us we have righteousness in him so that is what it is to be blessed job states in job 5:17 Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. So when we're chastised, have a look at Hebrews 12. And it talks to you about the chastisement of God. That he doesn't chastise um, just anybody. He chastises his children. Just like we chastise ours. Why? Because we love them. Because we want them to go on the right path. We want them not to deviate from it. And we know better than they do because we've been experienced. We've gone before them. We've seen, we've done, we've learnt, and we're trying to show them the right way. Yeah. That's an earthly father, as it says in Hebrews 12. Yeah. But God is a father who, 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 who chastises us for our certain and utter good. So even though those things, even some of those things in Matthew 5 may seem painful, may seem the kind of things that are actually going to make me feel uncomfortable, it actually says that you are blessed. You are happy in them. You are fortunate, even an enviable person. Because it says in the scripture, doesn't it, in Hebrews 12, 
that if you're not chastised, then it means that you are an illegitimate child. Genesis 6.5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, it says in this psalm, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And it says in Genesis 5 that, that the wickedness of man's heart was only evil continually. The ungodly. The first thing we must note here is that all mankind, in their nature and practice, are ungodly. So when it says here that blessed is the man walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, we have to understand that everybody, in some senses, is in that category. For we are all part of mankind, are we not? And it says in Genesis 6 that the evil of their hearts, their thoughts, was continual. In other places, he says that we are not righteous. There isn't one righteous, not one. Romans chapter 3. But in our nature and practice, we are ungodly. We are at enmity with God. We're in a, 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 a separated state. When you're at enmity with somebody, it means you're in an argument, you're in a debate, you're in a, but it's even worse than that. There is such a chasm to that enmity that there is no way possible for you to sort that out, to bridge that gap. Not that even you would actually want to in your natural state. You have no desire to fix the enmity between you and God in your own natural state. We are without knowledge of him. It is the same in the state of the elect. We must not forget that, friends. We can talk, we can preach, we can believe about the elect, and we do. But we don't look at them as some people that have always been okay. The state of the elect before God saved them is just the same. And their natural state, without knowledge, at enmity with God, every one of us, we've all been caught up in disobedience. But we see the love of Christ. That's what happens with the elect. We see it. He opens our eyes and we see the love of Christ in dying for us. Thus accrediting righteousness to our account. As we read in Romans 4 verse 5. It says, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Him that doesn't work. If you work for something, you're owed something. You go to work and you, uh, you are earning or you are owed a wage. The company you work for is in debt to you for your services and paying. So therefore, this is talking about grace. And it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the elect that even though they're in the same natural state of enmity with God, without knowledge of Him, Without God in this world, he turns them, draws them to himself 
irresistibly. He doesn't force a person's will. He doesn't twist their arm up their back and say, you will believe. He causes us to long for him, to love him, to naturally, uh, in, in, our, in our newness of heart, to, to desire him, to want him, to long for him. That's what it means when he speaks of irresistible grace. We want him. We want to love him. We want to desire him. We need him. We, we can't do without him. And those who trust in him and believe on him, his faith is accredited or accounted for righteousness. It's the difference between those elect and those who are dead in trespasses and sin. It's the only difference. The truly blessed, although once walking in the same ways, you can read that in Ephesians 2. The truly blessed who once walked there, no longer walk in them. No longer walk with them. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? It's 2 Corinthians 6. How can a believer yoke themselves together with an unbeliever? When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as it leads up to the breaking of bread in chapter 11, it's, he speaks about the Lord's table. He says, how can we partake of the Lord's table and the demon's table simultaneously? can't do both can't walk in the same way that we used to so to walk it, it denotes a manner of life and conduct when the scripture talks about walking don't no longer walk in the ways that a sinner walks in it speaks of a manner of life it speaks of our conduct where we once were sat in darkness and we're led by the prince of the power of the air. Those who have seen that great light. Who have been made alive in Christ. Who have the word as a light to their path. They walk in a different way. Their conduct changes. They walk on the narrow path. Which leads to life. On the narrow path. There is just one voice. The voice of the shepherd. The voice of the living God which the sheep hear. And they know it. And they follow it. But so wide is the way that leads to destruction. That there is space enough for every counsel of wickedness. Which tickle and entice the ears and hearts of the damned. Much space for all kinds of voices. And where do we hear these voices? In the world. That's where we hear them. What's the broad path to destruction? Worldliness. Lawlessness. Following the worldly system. Being swayed every which way but loose with the enticing vices of the world. That's where the voices are heard. 
And this world, friends, is full of damned people. Speaking of the Council of the Ungodly, Joseph Barnes notes this. It's after the manner, the principles, the plans of this class of men. He does not take counsel of them as to the way in which he should live, but from the law of the Lord. This would include such things as these. He does not follow the advice of sinners. He does not execute the purposes or plans of sinners. He does not frame his life according to their views and suggestions. In his plans and purposes of life, he is independent of them and looks to some other source for the rules to guide him. We will obviously look into what those rules are, which guide the blessed on another occasion. So this is the man. The blessed man walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor does he stand in the path of sinners. See, to walk is to begin a journey. But then to stop and to stand shows a greater purposeness, greater deliberation than walking. You can walk, but when you stop to stand, you're making a decision. There's more purpose in it. So, for example, we may walk on a busy high street, for example, and then something might catch our eyes, mainly the ladies. No, that's just, that's just a joke. <laughs> but seriously, we can, be, we can have something that catches our eyes, can't we? Something in the window. Something we might have longed for. We stop to look. Walking down the street, we see it. And we stop and we look. Moses journeyed through the wilderness upon seeing a burning bush. What did he say? What did he do? He saw that this bush wasn't consumed. And he said, I will now turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burning. See, the truly blessed person may have no choice to walk through Vanity Fair, where temptations are found. Where the lust of the eyes and the pride of life glare and they prod and they poke and they entice on every side. But by the power of the Holy Spirit enabling and mortifying or putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We don't desire to stop and stand happily taking in the scenery. Pondering whether or not to partake of that forbidden fruit like Eve in the Garden of Eden. A path of sinners is no place for the feet of those who have been made righteous by Jesus Christ. And this is he who said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness that have the light of life. That's not the path for us, friends. We don't stop to linger. 
Paul says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There you see, walk, walk. Your conduct, your journey, your way of life. From the point that you're born again to the time that you enter heaven, you are on a path in which you're walking. You're on a journey. See, the path of sinners is where they are found. The person standing on this path associates oneself with them. Instead of setting the face like flint to a better destination, they hang around, they loiter. Makes me think of, of King David. You remember when he paced his palace at the time that he should have been heading out to war with his army in battle. And he then was found loitering on his balcony, wasn't he? Setting his gaze upon the bathing Bathsheba. Had he not stood there? Had he been where he ought to have been? He wouldn't have inquired into who she was. You see, when, we, when our eyes are caught, we're not careful. That's when we start to inquire into sin. So he did this, he inquired, he sent men to fetch her. So when we, when we allow our eyes, when we walk and we stop, and we allow our eyes to be taken in by the sins of this world, it's then we inquire into sin. And then when we inquire into sin, then we go forth and we fetch it. We go after it. And we bring it to ourselves like David did Bathsheba. And then we fall into grievous sin. Solomon wisely stated in Ecclesiastes 10 verse 18, Because of laziness, the building decays. And through idleness of hands, the house leaks. See, David was being in laziness, loitering around, not being where he ought to have been. And it started to decay, didn't it? And then he found this knock-on effect, a domino effect of sin. The house in which he stood sprung a leak mm. committed adultery and if that weren't bad enough he got the lady pregnant and if that weren't bad enough he then tried to force the wife husband to sleep with her so that the baby was seen to be his and when that didn't work he went again even worse and ended up putting him at the front line of the army in knowing very well that he would be murdered yeah. Proverbs 15 verse 19 says, The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the upright is a highway. So we don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The blessed man doesn't stand in the path of sinners. Nor, lastly, in this verse, does he sit in the seat of the scornful. 2 Timothy 3.13 says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The Bible says 
that we, that, that we give birth to sin when we lust after it. Yeah. And then when we sin, it gives birth to death. The one who walks in the counsel of the ungodly and stands on the path of sinners will go on to sit in the seat of the scornful. To sit again. We've seen walking. We've seen that they go on then to stop and stand and look and engage. To loiter. But to sit is still an even greater deliberation than the other two. I mentioned before, I think, in the message that I spoke on in regards to Psalm 1, about the chair that I have at home it stands in the corner of my living room. It's like a place of comfort for me. It's my chair. I go in and I see one of the kids on it. I'm like, what are you doing in my chair? My chair, my place, you know. But it's that place of comfort. It's that place of rest or ease. It's the place in the house that on most occasions I can probably be found. It is the seat that I occupy in the house. Yeah. And so here the emphasis is on occupying a seat. That's what it's saying here. Those who sit, they occupy a seat. A place of meeting. A place of discussion. Interesting enough, like in church, most seats are occupied by the same people each week. It's like somebody comes and sits on that corner there. Somebody might think, that's Chloe's chair. What's <laughs> <laughs> sitting there for? <laughs> but you see, you see the emphasis of a seat. It's somebody's, my seat, this is where I sit, this is where I belong. That's what it's saying. This is where I belong. I am placing myself here. See, we can look at an empty chair and we can say so-and-so sits there. We know that a certain person usually sits there. A person who sits does so because they choose that particular place. To sit is to choose. They desire to place themselves there. This is something that's got so much purposefulness, if that's a real word, to it. They're comfortable there. And they're comfortable not only there, but comfortable with their surroundings. If you don't like that person that sits next to you, then you find another chair, don't you? So you, you've got to be happy about where you sat. You've got to be happy not only about the seat, the type of seat, where it is, but who you're next to. You've got to be comfortable all around. You've got to want to be there. You've got to be happy to be there. And in this sense, it says that it's the seat of the scornful. So you've got to be happy to be included with the scornful. When we walk with the counsel of the ungodly, and we stand in the path of sinners, we will get to that place where we are happy to be included with the scornful. See, the other two tenets, ungodly, sinners, much like walking, standing and sitting, 
there appears to be a progression. Again, uh, Barnes notes on the ungodly. He says, the wicked. The word used here is general. So going back to walking in the counsel of the ungodly. The word is general. And will embrace all kinds of degrees of unrighteousness. It is not so specific. And would in itself not indicate as definite or as aggravated depravity as the terms which follow. The general sentiment here is the man referred to is not the companion of wicked men. And then he says, sinners. This word means literally those who miss the mark. Then those who err from the path of duty or rectitude. It is often used to denote any kind or degree of sin. It is more specific than the former word rendered ungodly. As denoting those who depart from the path of duty, who fail in regard to the great end of life, who violate positive and known obligation. But then scornful means to deride, to mock, to scoff at, to treat religion with utter contempt. It is a more determined form of wickedness than either of the other two forms or terms. Leads me to think of those Pharisees who mocked Jesus. Speaking of his power to drive out demons as coming from the prince of demons himself. Of the gnashing of their teeth and subsequent evil plotting to destroy him as soon as they possibly could. These kind of people are depraved. These kind of people are lost. And I wonder... With such blasphemous character, if there is any hope for them. Jesus said of such that they were not his sheep. This is what it means when you get to that place where you sit in the seat of the scornful. That's where these Pharisees were. He had already walked in the path of the ungodly, already stood in the path of sinners. And now they were found, sat comfortably. You just read about them in, in the Gospels. Read about how, what they're like, what their desires are, the wickedness of their plans. That they, they didn't want their, their nation, their, the rule of their nation to be taken from them by this man. So they plot to murder and to kill him. Finally then, the truly blessed person is the one who has no involvement in such things. The truly blessed person is one who has no involvement in the counsel of the ungodly. And has no involvement in standing in the path of sinners. And then, of course, has absolutely no involvement in sitting in the seat of scorn and mockery. This is one whose desires are for much grander pursuits. One like a soldier who longs not to please himself, but the one who enlisted him. You see, if we love the Lord and are found to be in him and he in us, then we no longer live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see those things in Romans chapter 8. You see, we're sons of God. If we're truly blessed, 
than we're sons of God. Heirs with Christ, seated with him in heavenly places, filled with his spirit, mortifying the deeds of the flesh, desiring to please him, born again under grace, set free from the dominion of sin, no longer under its power or its sway. We're freedmen, we're slaves unto righteousness, loved by him, his very own peculiar people, adopted into his family securely and eternally. We then do not fear judgment when our trust is upon such a blessed Saviour. For he was judged in our place. The price for sin is paid. He said, didn't he? It's finished. That's what he cried out when he gave up his spirit and he breathed his last. This, this is the life of the truly blessed both now and forever. That's what it is to be blessed. Not because you've had a good day, not because you've got a bit more money in the bank this week. And that's not to say that we ought not to be thankful for those things. It's not what being blessed is. All those things I've just mentioned, that's what it is to be truly blessed. Who would reject such blessedness? If we're playing with sin... We are already walking on the path of the ungodly. It's only a matter of time before sin gives birth to death, where we find ourselves not only walking through vanity fair, licking our lips at all the vices it offers, but standing, deciding, associating, choosing, grasping, taking the forbidden fruit. Until we end up with callous hearts and seared consciences, sitting in the seat of mockery of all that is good, calling good evil and evil good, rejecting the one and only Saviour. That's where it'll end. Once sat in that seat, like the hard hearted Pharisees there may just be no way back. Just turn with me. You've got your Bible to John 3.18. See, often people quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Absolutely true. Let's not forget what it says after. Verse 18, he says, He who believes in him is not condemned. Yeah. But he who does not believe is condemned already <laughs> because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Once we get to that place, there is a place where God will no longer contend with men. There is a place where men find themselves so hard, so against God, that there is likely no way back. 
And there was no way back for some of these Pharisees. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They were so hardened that Jesus Christ could say, you're no sheep of mine. That's a terror to hear. But friends, you've heard this, mo this, this morning, this evening, what it is to be blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the man who doesn't stand in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That's what it is to be blessed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm, this first great psalm. Lord, that you in your providence have put at the very beginning of this most excellent book. Lord, I thank you that you are the one that makes us blessed. That in and of ourselves there is nothing to be blessed about. That in our nature we're alienated from you, at enmity with you. We have no desire for you. We cannot reach you. We don't want to reach you. We just love the sin. Lord, without you, we are absolutely the man that walks in the counsel of the ungodly. We are absolutely the person that stands in the path of sinners. And we are absolutely the one that will continue and revel and love to sit in the seat of the scornful. But in your blessedness, in your great mercy, O oh God, you took me and my friends that are in the knowledge of Christ and trust in him here tonight out of the counsel of the ungodly. And we no longer walk there. We don't desire to be on that journey. Lord, you've stopped us from standing and taking in the sights and the vices and the, of the wickedness of the world. That's not to say that we're never tempted. That's not to say, Lord, that we don't get that little desire here and there. But Lord, you cause us to say no, to walk and to continue walking through Vanity Fair not listening to the vices and the voices that are found there. And Lord, it's you and you alone that causes us not to sit in the seat of the scornful. Yeah. Of such, some of you were, it says in Ephesians. We were like this. And yet in your mercy and your kindness, those who were sat in great darkness have seen the great light. Because you shone. Not because we found the light whether we were only in and sat and knew darkness, that was it. But you are the light and you have shone into the hearts of wicked men and women. Those of us here that know that you have done that, Lord. You have done that for us and we thank you, Lord, for it. Lord, for it is because you've chosen us before the foundation of the world. For whatever reason, we cannot fathom or understand why you would want to choose such as us. And yet, in the great love that you have for us, you did. And Lord, we give you thanks for that. Help us then, we pray, to move on from uh, this message tonight as we go our separate ways. To live 
like the blessed men and women that we are. And as we go on in this psalm, we will see, Lord, just what it is that we should desire. Father, help us, we pray, to live for you in all of those days that you've given us yeah. from henceforth. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you.